This is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. The global pandemic forced educators to close schools and all too rapidly pivot their instruction online. These educators must be commended for all they did under extraordinary and extraordinarily stressful circumstances, particularly given most educators had little to no training in online learning, design, or pedagogies. There's a big difference between the remote emergency instruction that most educators were forced to hurriedly implement and well-planned, well-resourced, and well-supported online course development, instruction, and learning. Pandemic-induced remote emergency instruction led to many challenges, but also many new opportunities, leading to a new generation of educators becoming even more excited about the affordances of digitally-mediated learning. Thus, the pandemic accelerated the already rapidly growing interest in online learning, what it is, how it happens, and how to make the most of it. I sincerely hope the global pandemic goes away, but online learning, as a valuable tool among many other ways of teaching and learning, is here to stay. That's why I'm so excited to talk to my guests today, Drs. Christine Greenhow, Charles Graham, and Matthew Kaler, who are experts in online learning. They're going to help us understand what is known about effective online learning, what is yet to be figured out, and all the exciting opportunities that lay ahead of us. Dr. Christine Greenhow is a professor of educational psychology and educational technology at Michigan State University. She studies various forms of online learning with a particular focus on learning and teaching with and through social media and changes in scholarship practices and research dissemination with new media. Dr. Charles R. Graham is a professor of instructional psychology and technology at Brigham Young University with an interest in technology-mediated teaching and learning. Charles studies the design and evaluation of online and blended learning environments and the use of technology to enhance teaching and learning. He is a fellow with both the Michigan Virtual Learning Research Institute for his work to develop a K-12 blended teaching readiness instrument and with the Online Learning Consortium for his outstanding achievement in advancing theory, research, and effective practice in online and blended learning. Dr. Matthew J. Kaler is a professor of educational psychology and educational technology and the assistant dean for faculty affairs at Michigan State University. His research explores the pedagogical affordances and constraints of newer technologies for learning, the development and refinement of the technological, pedagogical, and content knowledge framework, TPAC, and digital research methods for studying educational processes in social media and digital spaces, such as online learning. Today, we're talking about their 2022 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Foundations of Online Learning, Challenges and Opportunities, which is a part of a special issue of Educational Psychologist that they guest edited, which is entitled Diverse Lenses on Improving Online Learning, Theory, Research, and Practice. Chris, Charles, and Matthew, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Glad to be here. Happy to be here. So first of all, I mean, kudos on the special issue. It's, it's so needed right now. It's, it's really timely, really important. And I think for our listeners, it'd be great to start if you could just define for us what online learning is and what makes it you know, similar and different than other kinds of learning. Sure. So in our article, which is really foundational to this special issue, we define online learning as learning that involves interactions mediated through using digital, typically internet-based technology. So online learning can be similar to other forms of learning in the sense that people can be in the same time, uh, synchronous online learning, just like you would be in a classroom where everyone is together. But it can also be very different from face-to-face learning where people are distributed in place and time and space. 
Right. And so that that introduces all kinds of opportunities and also challenges, which are the things that you discuss so well in this article. I would also add that I think the easiest way to see in which it's different from other forms of learning is the, the pandemic teaching. The, the quick move to remote emergency instruction showed a lot of people practically how they just tried to just reenact their existing pedagogy in online spaces, and it didn't go so well that there are different affordances and constraints of online learning than there are of traditional face-to-face learning. And a lot of people were confronted rapidly with what those changes were. Yeah, I, I can certainly attest to being one of those people. Uh, it, was a, it was a challenge and it required some real, some real shifting. So that's why I'm so excited about your special issue and in particular your article in the special issue. Could you just kind of walk our listeners through what you covered in your article and, you know, kind of what they might expect if they were to, to open it up? Sure. I can take a stab at this. So this article in this special issue on online learning is called Foundations of Online Learning Challenges and Opportunities. And this first article in the special issue is truly foundational to understanding online learning, the subsequent special issue articles, and the issue as a whole because it lays out for readers fundamental ideas and debates in existing online learning scholarship. So we really think readers will wanna start with this article because it provides a historical context of online learning research, Mm -hmm. a nuanced but big tent definition, and characterizes dimensions of online learning that have implications for educational psychologists, learning scientists, and educational technology researchers to unite our three fields. That is really exciting, and, and thanks for that introduction. You know, I think as as people begin to explore what online learning is, you know, they're aware perhaps of things like, well, online learning is asynchronous or sometimes it's synchronous, but there's a couple different versions that people might not be as familiar with. And so I'm wondering if you can help our listeners understand what bichronous or blended online learning is. Maybe I should take that. Thanks for asking the question, Jeff. Mm-hmm. So... There's a lot of dimensions that affect how we interact with each other. Two of the important dimensions are time and place. Mm -hmm. So you can think about blended learning as mostly focusing on that place dimension. It's a combination of in-person and online or technology-mediated instruction. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about blended learning, that's combining instruction across those modalities. If you look at bichronous learning, it's a pretty new term uh, for something that's been happening for a long time, but this focuses predominantly on the time dimension. Mm -hmm. So we have synchronous instruction, which is like Chris mentioned before, instruction that involves people interacting in real time. And then we also have asynchronous instruction in which people are not interacting in real time, more like email or think about a text chat that's happening, you know, over days Mm -hmm. or asynchronous discussion that's happening where people don't have to be together at the same time. So those are two really important areas. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, you know, blended learning can be both bichronous or synchronous only. Mm -hmm. So the most common blend that we see is where the synchronous part of the instruction takes place in person in a classroom, but then it's combined with asynchronous learning that's happening outside of the classroom. 
And and that's really helpful because I, I think these dimensions, time, place, modality, et cetera, all those help us better kind of understand the problem space, right? And the opportunity space really of different kinds of blends, different kinds of opportunities in in-person, online, synchronous, asynchronous, et cetera. Another dimension that you talk about in the paper is kind of formal learning environments versus informal learning environments. And so can you give us some examples of what online learning in an informal environment might look like and what's exciting about that? Sure. So, you know, when we think of online learning in formal settings, we think of learning tied to a course or a class with formal learning objectives, teachers, students. When we think of informal learning, such as in social media spaces, we may not have learning objectives or teaching objectives. We may have mm -hmm. people coming together because they have a particular need or question or crisis that they're trying to manage and learn about how to resolve those things mm -hmm. by tapping into networks on social media. So we see this among teachers, right? Teachers mm -hmm. in spaces like EdChat on Twitter, coming together, asking questions. This happened especially during the pandemic um, mm -hmm. because there was so much uncertainty. And so this informal learning in social media created sort of professional learning networks for teachers that arose spontaneously outside of traditional professional development. So already we've really expanded what I think many people's idea of online learning is or can be or the relevant factors involved. And so it really is a new territory. We're still learning a lot about it. And your article does a wonderful job of helping us better organize and understand that territory. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate from special issues and educational psychologists and from authors who do work like yours. And so you, you talked about five lenses through which scholarly communities are kind of generating knowledge about online learning research and practice. And so I thought it might be helpful just to kind of mention briefly each of those lenses and maybe you give us a sense of some of the ideas uh, that are captured in the special issue through those lenses. So the first lens that you talked about was community. And so can you talk to us about how online learning researchers are thinking about community? So the community lens looks at the interactions between the multiple systems and the social learning processes that happens and communities of learners. You don't think a learning is just one person in isolation, but it takes a whole community. So when we're not face-to-face, -face, uh, some of these processes and interactions kind of have to be rebuilt and redefined. So uh, Peter Shea, Jennifer Richardson, and Karen Swan, they have a, an article that talks about what this community might look like uh, for online learning. And some of the key ideas about the interaction of uh, learner presence, teaching presence, what's traditionally been called social presence and cognitive presence and how those systems interact with one another. And, and that article is, is really fascinating. And I, I loved their introduction of kind of learning presence. And I, I really liked what you said about community. And it just, it, it makes me think about the different ways in which community is formed and how community can be between just two people and asynchronously. It can also be between multiple people synchronously or asynchronously. If, if I'm someone who uh, really wants to try to develop community in an online course, I mean, do you have any like tips or things that immediately come to mind that this is a really important aspect of building that kind of community that educators should be thinking about? I can just talk about like how I think about this. And so at least for master online courses, we tried multiple ways for people to interact with one another. 
a lot of my courses self-paced, asynchronous, mm. but we have a coffee house where we set up times for people to come in and hang out and talk to one another. Also sending out weekly messages. So course announcements get sent via the learning platform. They get sent via email. Mm. They get sent uh, via Twitter. Even I make broadcasts. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to leverage all the tools, synchronous and asynchronous, um, for ways for students to interact with one another, students to interact with past students, and students to interact with resources online, and, of course, to interact with their instructor, me. That That's such a fascinating aspect of online instruction, that whole idea of interacting with past students and how there's this record of what previous students have said and thought about and how that can be accessed. And so uh, I think community is a really wonderful lens to think about online learning and how to enhance it. So I just want to add that one of the things that's really important, I think, when we think through the idea of community in online spaces is that community might develop a little bit differently than it does in in in-person spaces. And it might Mm -hmm. require a little different kind of nurturing because in many online spaces, especially asynchronous online spaces, there's not as much opportunity for, you know, this idea of propinquity, right? Where you're just naturally together informally and just make connections like you might if you're like sitting in a classroom waiting for class to start. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think when we think about creating community in an online space, we oftentimes have to be more intentional. And I, I also would say I say create community, but there are mm-hmm. a lot of people who believe that you can't really create community. Mm-hmm. You can set up the conditions that mm-hmm. will allow community to thrive. You create the environment and try and nurture the environment and hope that uh, community develops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Jeff, I would also say that something that's interesting about this, and this connects with the next lens, which is the engagement lens, that talks a little bit about community also. And that is that there are a lot of different communities that support students in their learning. With Mm -hmm. the engagement lens, the idea is that there are a lot of different communities that support students in their academic engagement. And we're used to thinking about those communities as being kind of related to the course or related to the program or the institution that's providing the instructors and the support. And that's an important online community for helping support students in the online context, the peers and the instructors and Mm -hmm. all of that. But there's another community, probably multiple communities, but there's another community that's really important in helping students to engage and that's what we call the, the personal community. That's the family, the friends, the personal networks that people have. And this kind of also ties back into the informal learning that Chris was talking about earlier. These personal communities that students have really support the students in learning in ways that are sometimes difficult for the formal or course communities to support them. Mm-hmm. So. I'd like to add that one of the interesting things about the pandemic was watching some of these learning communities break down. So Mm. when we went to remote learning instruction, watching my own children, but other children as well, talk how the communication between teachers and parents, family members and students trying to figure out what assignments they're supposed to be doing and when as we all were homeschooling our children. Mm-hmm. And the reconfiguring of those learning spaces and communities to talk differently to one another, to, to get on the same page, to figure out what students were supposed to be doing and how to support our kids. Mm-hmm. 
and get them to their Zoom meetings on time and all that <laughs> required a whole community to educate our children in ways that were different than we were doing just months before. That's a great point. And it reminds me of the Shea et al. article where they talked about teaching presence. And they say teaching presence, it's not teacher presence, right? It's not just one person. The teaching environment and the community that is created to teach, as you said, Matthew, talk includes teachers, peers, parents, siblings, other family members, et cetera. And I think that article and your article really introduce readers to a different perspective about what communities are and Charles, as you said, how many there are and how many are important in an online context. So that, that's really helpful. And you've already mentioned uh, the second lens that you discuss in your article, which is engagement. And you mentioned different kinds of engagements across environments. But could you say a little bit more about the various dimensions of engagement and the kind of environments that are considered for engagement? I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, sure. So Learner engagement is something with a deep research history, both in you know educational psychology and in online and other environments also. So I think that there is a lot of work that needs to be done in this area to better understand what learner engagement is and how it works in the online space. Mm-hmm. Much of the work that's been done in the educational psychology community, which is very good, focuses primarily on in-person spaces. And one of the challenges is that the online space has very different affordances, very different dynamics than the in-person space does, because it's oftentimes asynchronous, as we talked about before. People are separated in space and time, which makes many of the ways that we encourage engagement in in-person environments more challenging in the online space. Mm-hmm. So I would just give this thought experiment for people to think about. We're talking about formal learning right now, but if you're in a classroom and you're teaching a class of let's say 30 youth, and there are a lot of cues that you draw from just looking at the students in the class to know if they're engaging mm-hmm. in the learning activities. You know, you might see them with their head on the desk or you might see them distracted with something else. But when you're in an asynchronous online space, you don't have any of those visual cues to know if a student's engaging or not. So you have to rely on other kinds of data and other strategies to be able to know if students are engaging and to help them engage if they're not. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that's helpful in kind of understanding the picture mm-hmm. of engagement and how it's different in the online space. Yeah, it's really helpful. And it reminds me of the debates about, you know, should students have their cameras on or not? And, you know, there's a lot behind that debate. But part of it was educators saying, I I just really need to be able to see my students so I can do exactly what you said, Charles, kind of respond to their level of engagement and calibrate my instruction accordingly. And there's so much there to unpack about how people engage with and through the affordances of online learning. And I know that in the article by Martin and Borup, they actually kind of crossed the psychological dimensions of engagement with the various affordances and constraints of the environments, one of which you mentioned, Charles, which was when it's asynchronous, you have to rely on different tools. Thanks for bringing up the dimensions of learner engagement. I'll just briefly outline those. I think the ed psych community is going to be probably very familiar with kind of these dimensions, but 
I think about them as the ABCs, right? Affective, behavioral, and cognitive. Mm -hmm. And these are important because students engage in different ways. You can think about somebody who's affectively engaged, meaning they're motivationally, emotionally engaged in a course. They're excited about the content, but they're not behaviorally engaged, meaning Mm -hmm. maybe they have struggles with their self-regulation skills or they have struggles turning in assignments, you know, so they have high excitement, but low, you know, ability to follow through. Mm -hmm. So ABCs, affective, behavioral, and then the third, of course, is cognitive. And one of the challenges, the historical challenges of online learning is that we've provided a lot of cognitive support. So you might have an online course that has lots and lots of resources. You know, if you're missing this kind of concept, you can drill down and get specific support on how to do this problem, step through each step, all that kind of stuff. But if students aren't motivated, if they don't have that affective engagement or the behavioral engagement, It doesn't matter how much cognitive support you have, they're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so there are challenges within our community, too, where we focused a lot on one of these dimensions over other of these dimensions. It's something that the online research needs to improve, too. Yeah, there's so many challenges, but then also, as you said, opportunities in an online instructional space. And figuring out how and why students are engaged and how to change that is really important. And of course, pedagogy plays into that. So instructors through their pedagogy can engage students or create environments that may be more or less engaging. And so pedagogy was a third lens that you identified. So can you talk to us a little bit about like online pedagogy and what the the latest thinking is there about effective pedagogy in online environments? Sure. So in the article that was written in the special issue around online pedagogy, they identify five pillars, and these pillars are research-based. They're also in the national standards for quality online teaching, and they talk about each one of these a little bit. And I'm just going to read them, and they'll give a flavor for the, the different ideas. But one is building relationships and community. We've already talked about community before, but that's an important pillar, important part of online pedagogy is knowing how to build relationships and community within the online space. Mm-hmm. A second one is incorporating active learning. So knowing how to have students actively engaged in the learning process. Uh, pillar three is leveraging learner agency. So knowing how to use authentic and reflective environments to help students engage their own agency. Mm -hmm. Pillar four is embracing mastery learning. That's something that we talk about quite a bit in the online space. And then pillar five is personalizing the learning process. And there's a lot of talk right now in the online community about how do we personalize or individualize the learning process? Because once we're in an online space and are not constrained by place and time in the way we are in other uh, more traditional learning environments, we can start to think about everybody not having to do everything lockstep together. Mm -hmm. So how do we go about allowing people to progress in their learning in ways that are unique to them? instead of everybody in the class having to progress kind of at the same speed. So those are a few of the ideas that are covered in this article. And there's so much there to unpack, and it it aligns so well with research in educational psychology and learning sciences, and there's just so many wonderful connections across them. And, you know, Chris, I, I guess I'm thinking about 
online educators, people that are having to maybe pivot to an online instructional modality or just learning about it, um, they're out there in informal spaces trying to get information about online learning pedagogy. How do they do that? What are some good ways for them to get that kind of information? Yeah, how do they do that? They tap into existing networks. A lot of them, you know, as, as many of us live our lives, social media is part of it, and sometimes just for personal use, sometimes for professional and personal use. So I think many teachers, especially younger teachers, are already on social media personally. And so it's pretty easy to piggyback on those routines and harness the social media for their professional needs. So one thing I think teachers did during the pandemic is they tapped into their existing social media teacher communities. Like I mentioned, EdChat on Twitter, there are specialized communities like for social studies educators, literacy educators. You know, so you think about these different sub-communities on social media. So they would go to people that they already trusted because they had mm -hmm. an existing relationship or they knew that this was a, a space where they had seen articles that they could verify the source. So I think how do teachers know whether the information they're getting is quality? Partly it's word of mouth and trust, but it's also verifying sources. But then I think the challenge is, as many teachers talk about, if these places aren't vetted, there's no standards, misinformation can spread on these networks as well. Yeah, it's just so interesting how the process of learning about these kinds of pedagogies via online sources is in its own way a community of inquiry. You know, there's a teaching presence, there's a learning presence, there's a social presence. Um, and a lot of these ideas also apply to the process of people kind of gathering this information. And um, some people are more adept or have more resources to do that than others, which I think ties really nicely into the fourth lens that your introductory article outlines. And then there's an article in the special issue kind of parallel with that. And that's about equity. And I think when people think about equity in online learning, a lot of people, lay people think about what the quote unquote digital divide, but there's a lot more to it than that. Can you give us a sense of kind of what equity means in online learning, including, but also beyond the digital divide? Sure, I can take this one. So, well, Jeff, I'm just so thrilled that you're, <laughs> you asked the question because I think, you know, equity in online learning during the pandemic was a major issue and it was a multifaceted issue as we talk more about in this article and as the article on equity in online learning talks about in the special issue. The problems of equity in online learning predated the pandemic but they accelerated and exacerbated during the pandemic. So it's a really important topic. When we think about equity in online learning, as you mentioned, we typically think about digital divide as people who have access to technology, like access to laptops or broadband internet, high-speed internet access, the kinds of technical things you would need to get online. Mm -hmm. Some people have that, some people don't. Mm -hmm. But what I really love about the article in this special issue is it takes a much more multidimensional, nuanced approach, uh, an important approach to understanding equity as not just the physical resources people have or don't have, but also the human resources, the skills needed, the competencies needed to participate in online learning and the social resources, as we've already mentioned mm -hmm. in the pandemic, teachers, but also parents people around them beyond parents that could help step in and support students. So equity in online learning is really multidimensional. Physical, human, social resources are all needed. And this article by 
Tate and Wareshower talk about all of the equity issues that predate the pandemic, such as who takes online courses and why, mm-hmm. student attendance, achievement, and outcomes. There are equity issues surrounding all of these things. And of course, the impact of the pandemic also impacted people differently depending on various factors. And, and that's such an important contribution. You know, I think a lot of times when people turn to our journal educational psychologists, they're they're looking for theory and they kind of want to understand why. But it's equally important to understand what. And important articles take an idea and people's maybe sense of that idea and expand it and elaborate it and say, there's more here than you're thinking about. And that article on equity really does that, as you said so well. It, it moves beyond just the digital divide to talk about a multidimensional perspective on equity issues and online learning. And I, it really opened my eyes, and I think it'll open other people's eyes, as to all the different factors that can lead to inequitable opportunities in online learning and what society needs to do to address those, which is certainly, sadly, I think, is still going to be very relevant as we continue to grapple with pandemics and other things that are going on. And I I suspect as people are listening to these uh, really interesting ideas and and promising areas for scholarship, they're asking themselves, well, how how do people research online learning? What what tools and methods are are useful? And so the the fifth lens that you talk about is design-based research. So can you talk a little bit about kind of why design-based research was the one that you chose to focus on and one that the authors in the special issue chose to focus on when it comes to understanding and building online learning research? Sure. So the reason we chose design-based research as the methodology to focus on in this last lens that we introduced in our article is apparent if you think about what happened during the pandemic, where teachers, parents, students were trying to build this thing that was emergency online learning and teaching while simultaneously understanding what was or was not working with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that Mm -hmm. metaphor of building the plane while flying was particularly apt during the pandemic. So those kinds of problems that are multifaceted, fast-moving, evolving, need a comparable methodology that can understand not only the learning phenomena, in this case, online learning, but design and how to design iteratively and continually improve not only understanding of the learning phenomena, but of the design. And design-based research is particularly great for that. And the thing about this last article that we introduce in our foundations article is it talks specifically about applying, first about operationalizing design-based research, which will be, I think, very useful to people who are especially new to the approach, but then also applying that uh, model to studying and designing online learning. So it it Mm -hmm. walks the reader through a very real example of what this might look like. Mm -hmm. So their model is four steps, if I believe correctly, grounding, conjecturing, iterating, and then reflecting. Mm -hmm. And my own observation of the pandemic is one critique of how we got through that is there's a whole lot of iterating going on, but there wasn't a whole lot of grounding, conjecturing, or reflecting going on. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, we have a lot of experience in making solutions, but we haven't probably learned all the lessons that we could if we are actually going through a design-based research process. More grounding, more conjecturing 
and then reflecting upon those iterations and then going back and redoing it again. You know, Matthew, I think that's such a great point. And I'm sure you agree with me that, you know, in the moment, we were all just trying to <laughs> trying to survive in advance a little bit, you know, just trying to make sure that the learning got done. But you're absolutely correct that for us to really take advantage of the opportunities to explore and improve online learning, it's going to require all four of those steps. And so I think that's a really important point. We've got to get back to conjecturing and testing conjectures and reflecting, et cetera. That's, that's incredibly important. You also had two commentaries in this special issue. So can you talk to us a little bit about the kinds of things that your uh, authors wrote in their commentaries? Well, what I loved about the commentaries is that each of them brought a very unique perspective to this carefully curated collection that we had sought to put together in really interesting ways. Um, so Dan Hickey's looking at the contributions and talking about how viewing them through situative theory might lead you down different paths. And Barbara Means is looking at the collections and talking about the need for a more systems view, a complex systems view of some of the issues that were raised. So I think both of the commentaries were just so exciting because you know we had argued in this whole issue how online learning is pervasive, multifaceted, complex, and evolving. And we wanted to sort of say, you know, it's not so simple, folks. And these commentators, you know, just raised it to a, another level of complexity and interest and understanding. So you know, one of the really exciting contributions of your special issue overall across all the articles, across your article and the commentaries is how you bridged, I mean, three scholarly literatures, right? So the literature on educational technology, the literature on educational psychology, the literature on the learning sciences. I mean, that is not easy to do. And so you deserve a lot of credit and the other authors deserve a lot of credit for doing that. I mean, what was it like finding and making those connections? It's, it's, it's not a small task. I would say it was extremely challenging. When we proposed a special issue, we knew it was going to be challenging, but I was surprised by how challenging it actually was. Mm -hmm. And this may be more about my own personal journey as a researcher than the field, but I had my degree in educational psychology back in 2000, actually 1999, and I got hired into an educational technology position. And those two felt like the same thing to me back then in 2000. Mm -hmm. And here in 2022, they don't feel like the same thing to me anymore. It felt like a lot of bridging work that needed to be done. And we constantly had to do that bridging work and redo it again and redo it again. And working with the authors had to keep on working on trying to bridge all three of these fields back together again. And it was a very iterative process. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm curious what other people think about why, how have possibly those fields diverge so much in just 20 years and, and what that really means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just add, it, I would echo what Matt said, it was extremely difficult, but also for me at least, immensely satisfying. Mm -hmm. In our program, our program is a program of educational psychology and educational technology. So when we teach our doctoral students, we continually talk about the reciprocal relationship between ed psych and ed tech. And now here we were having to really walk that talk. And like I said, it was challenging, but it sparked some insights for me at least that I'm gonna bring into my classes. I'm gonna obviously introduce them to this special issue and then have a conversation about 
you know, what does it mean to bridge the fields, maybe share the experience of it being so difficult, and then start to talk with them, the future researchers, about why that is and what we can do about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would just reiterate what's already been said, that it was very difficult. But I also think that it's important if we really care about this area of online learning and better understanding this space and this domain, we need to all work together to figure out how to make it better. And if we're working all, all in our own little silos, we're not going to be as effective as if we can figure out ways to work together. And it's so important that we do. Online education is here to stay. It's gonna, mm-hmm. There's going to be another pandemic in the future, and we're only going to be doing more of this stuff. So more hands, more minds on the same project is very, very important. I would say also related to that, that online learning is definitely here to stay. You know, sometimes we think about online learning as being, I'm taking an online class that's fully online. But if you look at all the iterations and permutations of online learning in the informal learning environment, in blended learning environments that are involving in-person classroom, but taking advantage of some elements of online learning. I mean, it is going to be, it it already is the new normal in many contexts. Mm -hmm. So we need to understand it better. Really great points. I, I totally agree. And, you know, it's interesting to watch fields kind of get into silos and it's, it's completely understandable, right? I mean, there's so much research out there. There's so much happening. It's tough to stay on top of it, even within your own field. And so, you know, fields kind of silo and they kind of drill down, but we need opportunities and guides like your special issue to bring fields back together. And it's, it's super hard work and I, I can't thank you enough for doing it, but special issues like this are an opportunity for all of us to go, oh yeah, it's really important that we reach out. It's really important we do the hard work of you know, connecting and, and translating our work to each other and you know, learning what you have learned and sharing what I have learned so that we can better understand the phenomenon. Because as you said, online learning is a multifaceted, multidimensional, multimodal phenomenon that's not going away. And it's going to take all of us to figure out. I thought you said that really well. And your special issue does just a, a tremendous job of helping people wrap their arms around that really complex problem space and identify new directions for scholarship and practice. So, so thank you for all your hard work on it. Well, thank you, Jeff for all your support. (laughs) Sure. So, you know, very often uh, people come up to me at conferences or send me an email and they say, you know, I'm I'm interested in submitting a proposal for a special issue to educational psychologist, but I'm not really sure how to do it. Or I have a bunch of questions and that's completely understandable. Um, And I'm just wondering now that you're, you know, almost at the end of the process here as a special issue is coming out, uh, do you have any advice for people who are interested in pursuing a special issue proposal? I think, If you're going to propose a special issue to any journal, you absolutely want to invest in understanding that journal. So we spent quite a bit of time looking at what the journal had published on the topic of online learning. We looked at other educational psychology journals as well, just to get a sense of what people were talking about. Mm -hmm. We looked at special issues that educational psychologists had published to get a sense of, you know, the sort of the flavor of a special issue, its organization scope. The role of the foundations article, which was our article to kind of set the stage for the articles following it. So we really invested some time in understanding the conversation that we wanted to enter. Mm -hmm. I would say everybody should get a Chris Greenhow, who (laughs) 
does all this work up front and comes come seeking collaborators with an already formed idea and have done much of that work for you. That's that's my solution. <laughs> Amen. Chris, you are awesome. Well, that is really good advice. And, you know, Chris, now it sounds like you're going to be the guest editor in every special issue we do. So get ready for that. <laughs> okay, uh, but Jeff, one thing I want to <laughs> add, though. Also, this, this should have been my first thing. Read the editorials. Because it was you, Jeff, with your co-editor, Lisa, that called for more bridging between fields of ed tech and ed psych. So it was really you that created the space for this special issue. So thanks for that. Oh, sure. Well, you know, it's it's such an obvious need and you've filled that need so well. And I think your advice is is really spot on. You know, it's understanding the journal, any journal, any journal that you're submitting a special issue proposal to, you need to understand the journal and how they're structured and what are the criteria for successful special issues. And so really doing your homework before proposing is critical. And you do get a sense of, I, I love how you said, you know, entering into the conversation. You get a sense of the conversation in a journal and in a field or across some fields. And as I said, when you make those connections as you and your authors and your special issue have done, it just, it contributes so much. So I think people are gonna really enjoy reading the special issue, learning from it, and then building their research off it. So do you have any final words for people who are doing work in the area of online learning, be they in educational technology or educational psychology or learning sciences or anywhere else? Just encouraging people in all three of these communities to get involved in online learning research. I think it's an important area that's here with us to stay. And I hope people who haven't been involved in it before will come and bring their background, the theories they know from their domain that they're in, and learn and jump in and help us in this space. So that seems like a great place to end for today. I really encourage our listeners to check out Chris Charles and Matthew's 2022 article, An Educational Psychologist, entitled Foundations of Online Learning, Challenges and Opportunities, as well as the entire special issue that follows. And to all three of you, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having us.